gave him money, he made a whopping $32 in those 45 minutes. It's interesting, little did people know that his name is Joshua Bell, one of the best violinists in the world. He played on a violin that cost $3.5 million. And a few days before, he had packed out a theater in Boston with the average ticket price of 100 bucks. Isn't it fascinating that you could be surrounded by such greatness and not even know it? Isn't it amazing that something so awe-inspiring could be right in front of you and you didn't even care? Well, that was a story for Joshua Bell as he was there in a D.C. subway. And boy, that can't that be our story as we get in God's presence each day. We could be in the presence of greatness and hardly even know it. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we can be before the God of the universe, the glorious God, maybe sometimes not even be moved. You see, what we want to talk today about is the heart of worship and what it really means for us. And I know that all of us come out of a wide spectrum. Some of us have some pretty good understandings of worship. Some of us don't know what worship really is. Some of us know who we worship, and some of us think we know who we worship, but really are actually worshiping something different. And we're going to unpack this for us. I want us today to see that when we come, not just on a Sunday morning, but certainly on a Sunday morning, we come together in God's presence, in the presence of greatness. And my great and grand desire is that we would notice and be stirred and awe-inspired by our great God, who is beautiful and glorious. You know, sometimes we can go through the motions of Sunday morning and not really think about what we're doing. We can, we can just kind of do what we know we're supposed to do, or maybe what we think others want us to do. We can sing a song. We can sing it loud. We can lift up our hands. We can bow our knees. Sometimes we can even manufacture a tear or two. But where is that coming from? See, at the heart of worship is worship from the heart. And it's what God wants for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means that you believe that Jesus has died for your sins. All the, all the garbage in your life went on the cross on him. And in exchange, he says, you're forgiven, and I give you my righteousness. So when the holy God sees you as a sinful person, he sees the perfection of Jesus. He doesn't see all your mess because you're forgiven. And when you believe in Jesus and turn from that mess and follow him, you become a Christian. That's what it means to become a Christian. And we want to see all followers of Jesus raising our white flags and worshiping him. See, one of the core values of ours at the Brook is white flag worship. It's not to say that we worship white flags, but we worship with our white flag, which is the universal sign of surrender. We come before God and say, God, I got nothing to offer you. God, God, I'm a, I'm a poor beggar. I need you. And that's what it means to raise our white flags and God, I'm done fighting. I'm done trying. I'm done pretending. I'm done trying to put on a show. I'm done trying to impress other people. God, I need you. That's where you're at today. You're at the right place at the right time. And that's not where you're at today. You may be in the near future. I get to that place often. 
different times where I'm searching my heart saying, God, what am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I preparing a sermon? Why am I making phone calls? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And it ultimately comes down to my heart. God, am I seeking to worship you and honor you and live for you? Or am I just going through the motions of what I'm supposed to do? And so I pray that each of us would be gripped by that. And that when we come on Sunday mornings, we would come not to go through a rhythm or routine, but come with expectancy. I'm out of a job in heaven. When we get to heaven, there, there ain't no preaching because a sermon is right in front of us. It is God, and he is glorious. And I don't need to tell you God is glorious because you'll be looking at him. But who won't be out of a job in heaven are the worshipers. And what begins on this earth doesn't stop at our death. In fact, right now, it's practice for eternity. Where we then will stay before God in all his beauty and majesty. And our hearts will be directed toward him. Not distracted by the mess. Not trying to put on a show. But we'll be truly there before God loving him. Worshiping him. But I I want us to come on Sundays. I want us to, to, when we are alone at home, when you gather with your brother or sister, I want you to be expectant that God will meet you in that place. Church family, will you raise your white flag and follow Jesus? Today's passage is as convicting as it is alarming and as fascinating as it is inspiring. We find ourselves in the book of Mark chapter 11, you don't own a Bible, there's one there, right in front of you, a blue one. Page 847. If you don't own one, please take that one home. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it, to know our God, to love him dearly. We've been working through the book of Mark for over a year now, actually. We started last February. And we're just going passage by passage, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, in order to get an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and understand who Jesus is, to understand our own failures and flaws and to come before this God. And today we're going to learn about worshiping God from Mark chapter 11. See, chapter 11 of Mark sparks a new time in the book of Mark, which is 16 chapters. From chapter 11 on, we enter into Jesus' final week of life. He enters the city of Jerusalem for the last time. Because it's in that city that he'll be crucified. Mark Mark, uh, stretches out this time, this week, over five chapters. And throughout those five chapters, he has like little flashback teachings to Jesus' life. And he plugs them in there for us to read them and understand the big picture of what Jesus wants us to see. And the scene in almost the entire final five chapters is in the same setting. It's either in the temple or around it. The temple was a place of worship. The place where the the followers of the God of the Old Testament would get together to worship him, to sing, to learn, to pray, to give. And so for sure the next three chapters, but even into chapter 14 and 15, we see a lot of it take place in the temple. But first he's got to get there. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read these for us. Just comment briefly in order to get to later in the chapter. That's what God's word tells us. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, see, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, say to them, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the coat. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Verse 7, And they brought on a coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Pause there. This is known as the triumphal entry, the time when Jesus comes riding on a colt, on a donkey, entering to the city of Jerusalem. And if you're like me, I'm like, why a donkey? I'm like, really, Jesus? You know, go get yourself a nice big stallion and ride on that thing. You see, what Jesus was doing, he was fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, your king, O Israel, will come to you riding a donkey, a colt, which is to speak of humility. He didn't come riding a stallion, but a donkey. He didn't come with a red carpet, but with leaves and cloths. He didn't come with a trumpet sound, but with the people's sound, their voices. Jesus was not passive. He was purposeful. He entered Jerusalem as the king that he knew he was and not the king that they thought he was. They thought he was going to come and take over the city of Jerusalem, establish his kingdom, and then reign on earth for eternity. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He came humble entered into Jerusalem. And when he gets there, it says he went into the temple... He had a look around at everything, and then he left it and went back to Bethany. Bethany was probably the place where he was staying. In fact, three of his best friends lived in Bethany, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And it seems that Jesus would stay in their house in Bethany and walk over to Jerusalem back and forth throughout this final time of his life. But it says he went into the temple, looked around, and then left. Intriguing fact, isn't it? And it's an intriguing description. But what, what Mark is doing here, he's setting up for us what Jesus is about to do. The next day, we see in verse 12, they came from Bethany. They're leaving his home court and going into Jerusalem. And he was hungry. And on his way there, he sees a fig tree. And here it says in Mark that the fig tree was in full leaf. It was a fig tree in leaf. And he went to see if he could find anything on it. He's like, here, there's a fig tree. It's blossoming. It's got leaves like crazy. It's got all kinds of foliage. Let me go there, pick some fruit, and eat it. Well, there Jesus comes to the fig tree, and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Which is to say, it was not the time of the year where you expect tons of figs all over the fig tree, but it was a time of the year you expect at least a little bud. Just evidence of fruit. And Jesus didn't even see that. And in verse 14, he said to them, 
He said to it, to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Like, what's that about? Like, why is Jesus mad at the tree for? You know what I mean? Like, you've been apple picking, you don't find the right, tr- the right apples, like, why, you don't get mad at the tree. See, Jesus is taking an illustration from nature to apply it. And what it comes down to is this. He's entering into Jerusalem. He's entering into Jerusalem. And there he's by the temple where you would expect God to be worshipped and God's people to be following him. And he sees it at a distance and it appears to have it all together like that tree. Its leaves are blossoming and blooming. It had all the looks of having it together. But when he got close, there was no fruit in it. There wasn't even evidence of a little fruit. Not even premature fruit. There was nothing. And Jesus is looking at that tree and he's looking at the temple and he says, this tree is barren. This temple is barren of worship. My people have it all together. It looks good. But when you get up close, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. I enjoy playing basketball and every so often you come on the court and you see someone who's got all the gear on. You know those guys. They got the fresh LeBron James shoes on. They got their colorful socks, those nice matching jersey and shorts. They got the, the shooting sleeve on their arm. You're like, I want that guy on my team, right? <laughs> he had all the appearance. And then you get on the court, and you're like, bro, this guy's horrible. <laughs> Why? You know, judging a book by the cover. Oh, my goodness. And he's starting to try to trade him without him knowing, you know? <laughs> this is what Jesus is saying here. It looked like it had it all together. It should have been good. <laughs> It should have bore fruit, but it didn't. I mentioned this passage cuts to our heart. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder if we put on a facade that looks like this fig tree in full leaf and at a distance like, man, that that guy right there, man, he must love the Lord. Oh, that lady over there, she must love Jesus. And we could put on this show, but the closer people get, and the more they notice, they realize, wait, It's not adding up. Some of us are good at hiding it. The motions we go through, the rituals we go through look so good at a distance. But God's not fooled by it. He knows our heart. At the end of this sermon, I'm going to ask you guys to respond. I want to prepare your heart now. Because I think as we enter into the temple here, we're going to see that oftentimes our worship is not unlike the worship that bothered Jesus. And what Jesus calls you and I to do is to repent, which the Bible says is to turn away from our sin and turn back to God. Some of you have never turned to God to begin with. I pray that today might be day one for you, that you might repent, you might turn away from all the garbage in your life, all the fake gods, all the fake facades you've been putting on, all the ways that you've been trying to impress people, and you know it's not the real you, and underneath the surface, there's something there, and it's not fruitful. In fact, it's ugly. Well, God wants to meet you in that place. And there's others of us who might know the truth, and maybe we want to preserve a reputation. Maybe we want to create a reputation, but it's not consistent with who we are, and God's saying, stop it. Don't play you won't find freedom until you come to me. And so at the end of this message, I'm going to call you to come to him. We're going to open this place up and ask you to respond. To, to, to solidify what God's doing in your heart. Not because there's magical steps here, but because God wants you to step out in faith. 
And so here Jesus now enters into the temple. In verse 15, they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Say all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus steps into the temple, the same temple he was in the day before, looking around, seeing what he didn't like, came back the next day and said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to expose its fruitlessness. It was a glorious temple. It was called Herod's temple. It was beautiful. At a distance, you drop your jaw at the sight of it. Inlaid with gold. Attractive. And there's people flooding inside. You think, wow, surely God is worshipped in that place. And Jesus is saying he's not worshipped there. It looked good. But Jesus was repulsed by it. That braggadocious tree and this showy temple did not fool God. See, God knows the authenticity of our worship by coming near to us and searching our hearts, whether we know him and whether we're worshiping him. I want to pull out for you here six different truths I see, six different problems with their worship that I think God wants to expose to us. The first one is Jesus says he saw money changers there and that people were buying and selling. If you notice, Jesus is not just mad with those who were selling animals, but also those who were buying it. See, what happened was this. This was about two, about two weeks, I'm sorry, before Passover. God's people would come to the temple and begin to pay a temple tax. It was kind of their offering. And, but people came from all around the land of Jerusalem. And they had different currencies. So they would come there and exchange their money. Like when you go to a foreign city, you got to change your money in order for it to be valid in that context. And people were doing that, changing out the money, purchasing sacrificial lambs, purchasing pigeons, animals to sacrifice before God. And there it was, they set up shop in the temple premises to sell these animals. And people were buying and selling and trading. And Jesus is bothered by that because what was happening was that the Business that was taking place was preventing people from worshiping God. Can you imagine a racket of all the animals and the people changing money and money dropping on the floor and all these things? Jesus is like, you can't worship God in this setting. It's a big chaotic. It's a big chaotic. It's a mess. It prevented God's people from seeking, savoring, and celebrating him. What things are distracting you when you come to worship God? What are the distractions in your mind that you allow in your lives? Yeah, sometimes it's just a commute getting over here. <laughs> you can't get around that one. But, but other times there are things in our lives that we just, we're not preparing our hearts when we come in God's presence, just as they failed to do that. You know, on Sunday mornings, it's not the job of the musicians to make you right with God. 
It's not the job of our singers to get you into God's presence. Yes, they they see their, their beautiful privilege of leading you there, of helping you there, but it's your heart. It's your heart. We can have a a terrible technological malfunction. Does that stop us from worshiping God? Our mics go out. My mic just went out, didn't it? We didn't plan that, but that's good. That's that's not worship. You see, our our musicians, they they prepare. And they want to worship God. And they want to help you along. But you've got to come to God yourself. What distracts you? The first problem was that there were distractions preventing them from worship. The second problem was this. It's where they were set up. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? What does he say there in verse 16? For all, for all nations. Verse 17, I'm sorry. For all nations. You see, if we pulled out our geography of the temple, we would notice that it was very likely that they set up shop in what's called the court of the Gentiles. It was the place just outside of the temple premises where the Gentile, the non-Jewish people, would come as their place of worship, but they weren't allowed to be on there because they were Gentile. But now even the place of the Gentile was not a place of worship. So by setting up shop, they're, now, they're preventing people who were unlike them from worshiping God. They're remarkable. And in the same way, it's true that we could do that. We've got our preferences, we have our desires, things we like, the things we want to see happen. But how willing are we to die to those things for others who are different than us to be part of God's people? Whether it be style preferences, whether it be the sin of racism in our hearts. See, this was a Jewish-Gentile issue. It was divided by ethnicity. And Jesus is saying, no, my place of worship is for all people. And so we celebrate all ethnicities when we come to worship our God. And is it in our hearts to push that away? Jesus was bothered by that. They were closed off to other people, people who were different than them. But you know, I see also another parallel there. Jump down to verse 25. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think another way we close ourselves off from worship is when we have strife with other people. When you got beef with your brother and skirmishes with your sister, it creates a wedge in your worship. It does. If we are walking unreconciled, we got problems with one another, how can we come before God and say, God, I'm right with you? In other words, you can't be right with God and wrong with your brother. I'll say that again. You can't be right with God and wrong with your brother. When we have friction with one another and we're not dealing with it, it will hinder your worship. What does God want us to do about that? Well, Romans tells us that we're to seek peace with everyone. And yet there are times when we just can't accomplish that. The person we're trying to be reconciled with is resistant and pushes us away, but that doesn't mean you stop and give up. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, if you've got conflict with one another and you're not dealing with it, you've got to stop what you're doing and walk with your brother, walk with your sister. Repent, seek forgiveness, grant forgiveness in order for your worship before God to be right. Let, let that soak in. Sometimes people say, man, I, just, I feel far from God right now. There's, there's a variety of things that need to come to our mind that we need to think through. Am I, am I, am I hiding sin in my life that I'm not repenting of? That's, that's one. Am I unreconciled with my brother or my sister? Is there beef? That's two. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. See, our relational peace, our horizontal, does affect the vertical as the vertical should affect the horizontal. We can't be right with God or wrong with our brother. Here's how I want to say. Personal revival always, can you say always? Always travels through the channel of repentance. Personal revival always travels through the channel of repentance. You find yourself dying within. The way you get out of living with death and walking in life in Jesus, it begins by turning away from sin. That's repentance. First coming to God saying, God, I've sinned against you. And then going to others that maybe there's beef with. It could be a family member. It could be your spouse. It could be a child. It could be a co-worker. It could be a brother in the church, a sister in the church. But at the heart of worship, we must be vertically right with God and horizontally with others so long as it depends on you. Jesus saw this problem of people being hindered Distracted on the one hand, number one. Secondly, being hindered by all the mess that was going on. But there's a third problem Jesus sees. Look what he tells them there in verse 17. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He, he, didn't, say, he didn't say it is written, but is it not written? Notice that. He's saying, you know this, don't you? Doesn't it say this? As to imply the answer, yeah, yeah, I know it says that. This wasn't lack of information that they were struggling with here. They knew God's house was to be a place of worship and of prayer. And so Jesus is calling it out because it was a problem. They were choosing not to do what they knew God's word said to do. So the third problem Jesus sees is that God's word was no longer authoritative over their lives. You see, if we believe what God says in his word, we'll do something about it. We're not supposed to stand around and analyzing and never put it into practice. Yes, we dig in the scriptures. Yes, we pound on the Bible. But we say, God, how then shall I respond? And here Jesus says, is it not written? Let the word of God be authoritative over your life. And what God is calling to your mind, you submit to his word. This is over us. We are not over it. The fourth problem Jesus sees, he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
A den is a hiding place. He's saying the place of worship had become a hideout for sin and no longer a hospital for sinners. Hear that? You see, when we gather together, family, like I said, we don't need to pretend like we got it all together. This is a hospital for the broken, but not a hideout. It's not a place that we come to in order to hide or be affirmed in our wrong. It's a place where a brother or sister takes you by the arm and says, I'm going to walk with you through this. I don't want you to hide in this because as you hide in your mess, it will kill you. But if you come to the hospital, God will heal you and free you. And Jesus says the, the place of worship became a den, a place where people hide. That's the fourth problem. The heart was no longer being addressed. But the fifth problem, it became a den for what? Thieves and robbers. A den of robbers. The fifth problem is this. What do thieves do? They take. Thieves don't break into your house to give you a new TV. You see, at the heart of worship is a posture of giving to God, not just taking from Him. You know, we can have a, what our culture calls a consumeristic mindset when we come to God's presence. And maybe some of you guys are, uh, uh, this is a new conversation. And I want to I wanna just give you some um, understanding of what worship is about. See, when God calls us to gather together and be with your brothers and sisters and with your friends and family, we get together not saying, God, I'm coming this Sunday because I want something from you. You see, that posture leads to spoiled children who feel entitled to something when they show up. We're entitled to nothing. In fact, if we fought for our rights, as one person said, we'd be in hell tonight because that's what we deserve. But God in his mercy through Jesus has saved all of us who've put our faith in him. And so when we come to worship, we don't come entitled. We say, God, I need you. I'm a beggar. I'm poor. There is indeed a give and take in worship. We give God our worship, and what we receive is his grace. And yet with his grace, then we come back and say, God, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. You've given me Jesus. There's nothing else. You give me your Holy Spirit to empower me, to fill me, to use me. There's nothing else I need. God, my life is yours. That's the posture. Whereas the posture of a thief says, take. Hebrews 13, 12 through 15 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside of Jerusalem, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, to, to, to declare us holy. Therefore, let us go... To him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city on this earth, no. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us hear this continually offer up sacrifices of praise. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. When we come to worship God, we come with an offering, a sacrifice of praise. So when we enter those doors, I want us to ask, what is my offering today? What's my act of worship today? Rather than saying, God, I want to get something out of this right now. Yes, we receive. Yes, we're being instructed. 
Yes, in God's presence, our hearts are healed and there's joy we receive. Yes, we receive, but we also give and we give God our worship. Well, the sixth problem that Jesus sees, which is the greatest problem, who entered the temple? It's fascinating, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. Family, let this soak in. God entered the temple and no one noticed. They were in the presence of greatness and didn't even care. Remarkable. When our ears are numb and our eyes are blind, our minds are preoccupied, our hearts are hardened. We could be in the presence of God and not be moved. The only thing that could break that kind of hardness is revival, which always travels through the channel of repentance. We turn from it. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. You are right in front of me. And I didn't even care. When I was about eight years old, I was in O'Hare Airport. And I met Muhammad Ali. You know how much I cared? Zip. Why? Because I know he was. My uncle came. He said, Eric, this is Muhammad Ali. I was like, okay, all right, who are you? You know, shook my hand, crushed it, by the way. Like, seriously, I was like, you know. And I, you know, signed an autograph. I'm like, okay. Threw it away. I had Muhammad Ali's autograph. Didn't care for it because it meant nothing to me. But as I got older, in 1996, when I was a freshman in high school, I had the opportunity to actually run with an Olympic torch for the 1996 Atlanta Games, believe it or not. I ran a Crown Point, Indiana for a half mile. and had the torch with the flame on it. And it was a torch relay, so after a half mile, I passed the flame on to someone else. We passed it on to someone else, and it go throughout our country, and it ended up in Atlanta in whose hands? Muhammad Ali. And as a teen now, I realized, this, dude, this dude's pretty famous. <laughs> This guy, this guy mattered. And he lit that flame on the day the Olympics started. And now I got a story to tell. And I'm glad to share it because this guy was a great dude as a boxer. And yet, isn't that true with God? Sometimes we're in the presence of God and we don't care. But it's not until he opens our eyes so that we can see his greatness and his glory and his beauty. And all of a sudden we're like, God, you've always been there. And now, we just can't shut up. We got to tell people. We got a story to tell, but it comes when we are confronted with God and his beauty. And our sin is forgiven. And we say, God, here I am. You know me. You know my heart. Forgive me. Heal me. And when he comes and rocks your life, you can't stay quiet. He reinvigorates your worship. So what does Jesus do here? We see here in verse 16, he made everything stop. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He gets in the way. He's like, no, enough of this. Uh Uh-uh. This ain't happening today. Not on my watch. How is he calling you to stop today? To press pause on the rhythms, on the motions that are not the kind of worship he wants for you. 
And when you get sick, sometimes you're like, why am I sick? And sometimes you realize God's like, it's because you need to stop. And you wouldn't stop until I made you sick. I've been there before. Today, God calls you to stop if you're pretending. Stop if you're putting up a facade. And let personal revival take place in your life through repentance. Well, what is worship? Jesus says in Matthew 15, the This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is saying, I'm unconcerned with their lips and what exits their mouth. You can sing the songs, but Jesus says their hearts are far from me. And so we learn this about worship. Worship is something that happens in our hearts, begins there, and it's when we are confronted by a holy God and we love and adore him and celebrate him and savor him. That's, that's where worship takes place. And then from the heart, it does flow in a variety of ways. Sometimes we lift up our hands and praise. Sometimes we lift up our voices. Sometimes we fall on our face. Sometimes we just hang our head and cry out to God. This is all part of worship, but worship starts in the heart. And if you try to worship God through the external without first letting him work in the internal, you miss the heart of worship. Well, can this be possible for you? Maybe you've been playing the game for so long, you're like, man, my heart is hard. I don't even remember what it's like to cry in God's presence, to just soak in him, to love him, to be overwhelmed by his goodness and his love through Jesus. Well, it's no coincidence that when they leave the temple, they pass that fig tree again. And in verse 20, Peter and the others say, hey, Jesus, look, that fig tree you cursed, it died. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity that you and I need to hear. He says in verse 20, 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever you, whenever you stand praying, forgive, uh, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. I believe what Jesus is telling us to do here is to believe him to do what you want him to do in reviving your life. Just ask him to do it. Believe that he'll do it and walk and honor him and follow him through the lens of the gospel. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what was their impulse? They hid from God. And they had a very phony covering of fig leaves. And it's there in that garden that God meets them. He says, where are you at? And they said, we're here. He says, I know. And what he does is he exposes their sin and then he covers them with an animal sacrifice. He takes the uh, skins of animals and clothes them to cover their sin and shame. In the same way, the Lamb of God, our perfect covering, went to the cross for you. And all the garbage and all the sin and all the shame that you hold on your back Jesus took it for you. 
but it's only applied to you when you believe in him. And when you put your faith in him, your sin is declared into him, his righteousness is declared into you. You become adopted into God's family and are forgiven and you become a worshiper, a worshiper of God. He's calling you to believe it, but it begins with repentance. What's God telling you today? Are there distractions in your life? Are there hindrances? Are there unreconciled relationships? Is God's word no longer an authority over your life? Are you hiding out? Are you taking? Is God in your presence and you don't even notice? If that's where you're at, remember, your revival takes place when you turn to God through repentance. Back in the late 90s, songwriter Matt Redman wrote a song called The Heart of Worship. And the background to the story is fascinating to the song. He was in his home church in England, and there was a season where the church just felt like it was, its worship was dead. There was just nothing going on. And the pastor made a, a bold move. He says this, it says, he decided to get rid of the sound system and band for a season. Matt Redman writes, he says, and I remember we gathered together with just our voices. His point was that we'd lost our way in worship, and the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. The pastor asked them, he says, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? It's a question you need to ask yourself. Matt Redman says that he went into his bedroom during that season, and he penned these words. He says, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. He says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Church family, I want us to worship God in spirit and in truth because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We're going to respond, as I mentioned to you earlier. I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up. Um, what, what's God doing in your heart today? What's he revealing? How is he telling you to get back to the heart of worship, to reflect on the cross of Jesus, to love our glorious God? What kind of ways have you just been going through the motions and been stale? If God is calling you to repent of sin, would you do that today? God is calling you to not just shout out, but to bow your heart to do that today. If God is calling you to reconcile with somebody, do that today. If God is calling his word to be authoritative in your life so that you respond to it, respond today. And let's together bow before God in his presence. During his next song, um, I don't necessarily invite you to sing. 
but I do invite you to worship. And maybe you might want to stand. If so, do that. But maybe you don't want to stand. Maybe you want to bow before God here at the altar, and I want you to know you can do this. We will pray for you. We'll leave you alone if you want that. If you just want to come before God. Maybe you want to get on your knees in the aisle. Whatever it is, whatever God is calling you to respond, don't hold back. And maybe you've never trusted in Jesus before. Man, he's a good God. And what he offers to you is a life of forgiveness and joy in him. And man, how sweet it would be if today was your spiritual birthday. We'd love for that. I'm not going to invite our prayer counselors up just yet. I just want us all to search our hearts. We'll sing one song and then we have another one after that. But respond as God wants you to respond. Come to the altar if it be. Don't let nothing hold you back. But indeed, worship the Lord. Father in heaven, we pray. Where you're working, Lord, that you would establish that work through your spirit in the hearts of people. Lord, your word says in John that Jesus, your spirit comes to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And Lord, in our hearts, we, we know the truth. And Lord, I pray that we would not pretend, that we wouldn't feel the need that we need to pretend, but that we would come to our Savior, our triumphant King, who put down his life to resurrect ours. Oh Lord, take away the fear of responding to you. God, I pray you put away the what if people think I'm a hypocrite kind of questions. God, what if I mess up today? What if I mess up tomorrow? Put those away, Lord. What will people think? Put them away, Lord Jesus. Search our hearts and know them, oh God. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in us and indeed lead, lead us in the way everlasting, as the psalm says. And so, Lord, in the stillness here, let us truly worship you.